Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Nominee to the Supreme Court who came to us not through a dark money funded turnstile, but through a fair and honest selection process. Holy cow, Senator Whitehouse. That's how you start your opening speech? Supreme Court hearings begin today for the nominee, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Dark money? The Republicans are guilty of dark money? Can I tell you, I've been watching for like the past 40 minutes as as, uh, day one gets underway. And already, if there was an ice pick to put to the skull... I would have been done. I would have done it. I don't keep an ice pick here in the studio. I do have to get a bar set up. Don't get me wrong. I've got, I've got, I've got uh, Jefferson's uh, Ocean, right? I actually the their straight rye whiskey, which is finished in the cognac cast. That's on the shelves. But I could use a little bit of a of a bar cart scene down here. You know, really kind of, kind of, you know, soften up and 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 hip up the the studio. If I had an ice pick, like old school, dear lord. Because what we're getting for this Supreme Court uh, nominee is is twofold. The Democrats saying you're the greatest nominee who ever lived and anybody who says otherwise is a low-life racist bastard. And then the other side of it is, see these Democrats over here? What they did to the last nominee, the last two nominees, is so despicable as to be believed. Now, we're not going to do that to you. But there, look what they did, and and and, and I got to tell you, uh, you you are so lucky to have us. And Republicans, I should say, conservatives, or I should say, the populists all across the country, saying, "See this? This is why we can't stand Republicans. Go rip her apart, tear her apart. She believes in a living constitution. She never meant an abortion. She didn't like. What are you being nice to her for? Absolutely ruin her." Oh, they're going to call you racist if you do because she's the first female black nominee to the court? They're going to call you racist anyway. Go just ruin her. Kick her butt and take names. What are you doing? And there's actually an argument to be had all the way around about what we've done to the court process. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY-833-468-8669. I start with a basic. I start with a generalized theory. There is no such thing as a living constitution. And if you believe in the living constitution, then you are not qualified for anything having to do with the constitution. You are not qualified if you believe that the Constitution of the United States is something that you interpret as uh, changing with the times. It only changes with the times through amendments. And then the Constitution is interpreted for as it is. Not as you want it to be. As it is. Meanwhile, Senator Whitehouse, who's one of the most progressive members of the Senate, just going on a bit of a tear here. It reflects the type of even-handedness and independence that will make her such a good Supreme Court justice. Her guiding principle, she has said, is to consistently apply the same level of analytical rigor to a case, no matter who or what is involved in the legal action. She says this means you can, quoting again, be consistent 
in the way you are analyzing the issues. And you can set aside any thoughts about who is making the arguments and what advantages any side might take away from your opinions. If you have fidelity to the rule of law that is grounded in looking at only those inputs, she said, then I think you can rule without fear or favor. But she didn't get the nomination for that reason. What Senator Whitehouse just laid out there, supposedly the words, I I, I won't disagree with him, the words of uh, Judge Ketanji uh, Brown-Jackson, well, I think we could all agree with that. We would want that. A judge looks at the case in front of them, deals with the, the aspects of the case, takes a look at the laws that applies uh, to the case, and comes to a ruling. But that's not why uh, Judge Judge Jackson here was, was nominated. Judge Jackson was nominated, first and foremost, to satisfy those people who check boxes. Black woman, boom, boom. That's what mattered most. Not because I say so. They're the ones who said so. They're the ones who are race-obsessed. But if we take a look at rulings and we take a look at considerations, we're going to find that there is a bias not to uh, the rule of law, but rather to a rule of theory. And maybe you can argue that's the case of all justices. Well, maybe they have a certain lean uh, in, 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 in ways, but... Is that uh, the the reason to nominate? And if they have a lien that works for everything they do, then clearly judging a case based on the inputs is not what she's referring to. It's not what she actually believes. She may have said it, but she doesn't actually believe it. The problem that we have here, the problem that we have here is that right now we've got every senator on this Judiciary Committee You know, uh, every every senator kind of like going through grievances. And that is a problem. Charging that dark money swayed this selection. We are hearing that again today. Ironic. When hundreds of millions of dollars in right-wing dark money built the current court majority. And still signals its wishes through flotillas of dark money front groups posing as amici curiae. Does any of this help? Does any of this nonsense back and forth help at all? Does it help when Senator Lindsey Graham uh, goes down this road? And not even that I disagree with him. There have been people in my caucus that would have voted for her, even though we knew she would be a reliable liberal vote. Because I and Senator Scott would have stepped up. Now we're picked. Now we're facing a choice sponsored by the most radical elements of the Democratic Party when it comes to how to be a judge. Understand what he's talking about. There was a judge, Judge Childs, who was from South Carolina, who Lindsey Graham wanted. Look, I'm not going to get what I want, but if I can get a judge from South Carolina to be a Supreme Court justice, I, I, I can live with that. And I like this and don't like this, etc. The argument he's making is the reason you're here, Senator Brown, I, I mean, uh, Judge Brown, is because you were the pick of the most radical leftist elements of the party. Why is he even saying it? What the hell's the point of telling her that? It's very strange stuff. 
But it's an interesting kind of expose for us because is that why she got picked? Because the most radical elements of the Progressive Party, this is what they wanted. They have the most radical view of what a judge should do, and you were their choice. And you'll be asked, do you support expanding the Supreme Court? I hope you can give us an answer, because it shouldn't be hard. Either you do or you don't. Justice Ginsburg said no. She thought if you just changed the number of the court every time somebody new came in power, it would ruin the court in the eyes of the public and make it a joke over time. I agree with that. So I hope you can give us an answer to that question, because I think the court would be better off if the judges stood up for the court, if the judges told politicians, don't play this game with the court because over time nobody wins. So congratulations. It's going to be a couple interesting days, and we're off to a better start than we have been in the past. And the one thing I can promise you, you will not be vilified, you you will not be attacked for your religious views, you will not be accused of something that you could not defend yourself against until it was too late. Thank you. I mean, that's all flashback to what happened with with Brett Kavanaugh. Senator Mike Lee from Utah speaking to Judge Brown. Bring our duty under the Constitution and to our constituents to make sure that we do our jobs fairly and properly. When we're focused on things that we have no business doing, like bringing forward spurious, last-minute, uncorroborated accusations of a personal nature, we neglect the importance of talking about the jurisprudential role, the, the, the philosophy that guides individual jurists, and the document that we're all sworn to uphold and protect, the Constitution of the United States. It's also important for an additional reason, a third reason, that has to do with the fact that Having been nominated to this position, we know that you stand a, a, a very decent likelihood of ultimately being confirmed to this position, in which case you'll serve as a member of the Supreme Court of the United States. And I think it's important that even when, especially when, we disagree with decisions issued by that tribunal, we as a, as a committee, as the Senate Judiciary Committee, not engage in speech or behavior that would undermine the legitimacy of the Supreme Court of the United States. You see, it's the legitimacy of the courts that gives them their potency, their, their power, their significance in our system of government. We all have a duty to make sure that we don't undermine that very thing that we purport to be protecting. All right, I'll go with that. But what are the questions going to be, and what do we want them to be, and will any of it matter? The only thing that should matter to us is that we are picking justices for the Supreme Court who actually think that the Constitution says what it says and doesn't say what it doesn't say. And everything else is nonsense. I don't expect Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island or Senator Dick Durbin, a man most aptly named from Illinois, to care about those things. And that's the problem. Ideological purity is more important to them than the Constitution that the court is supposed to uphold. That they themselves are supposed to uphold. That's the oath. 
This is the issue. Just so we understand each other. So normally, when, when something like this happens, man, we share it. When, when the Kavanaugh hearing was her- happening, oh, we shared it. There's nothing to share here. If there are strange answers, strange philosophies, we'll go, we'll go over those. But, man, I'm not, I'm not playing this whole thing. Just no way. Because we already know how this is going to play out. We already know that she's going to become a Supreme Court justice. Because what matters most is making history, not the future of a nation. I'm Tony Katz. The Dow is down 110. NASDAQ is up 8. 8. Not necessarily a banner day so far. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. It's the oil prices. They're so interesting. I'll, I'll get into this conversation specifically. Listening to Representative Pramila Jayapal, who heads up the progressives in the House. And the attack on on the oil and gas industry, uh, Brent crude is back up to one hundred fifteen dollars a barrel. West Texas over one hundred and ten. West Texas was under one hundred, and before that it was up to one hundred twenty something. And Brent crude was at one hundred thirty nine, and then it was at one hundred, and now it's at one hundred fifteen, and it's hit one hundred twenty. The oil prices aren't necessarily going anywhere. That isn't the case. They still hovered at 100, which is still way too high, and are now back in the 110, 115s, 120s. My, oh, my. But we want to somehow say it's the gas industry that's all the problem. I will get to that nonsense coming up. There is a worker for Apple who's been uh, charged in a $10 million fraud. So there's a buyer in the Global Service Supply Chain Department, charged with engaging in a conspiracy to commit fraud, money laundering, and tax evasion. So this guy utilized his position to defraud the company, uh, would steal parts, and force the company to pay for items and services it never received. And then two owners of vendor companies that worked with Apple admitted to conspiring with this guy to commit fraud and launder money. It's five to 20 years on each of the charges. Now, with all of these things, I always ask the same question. How, how? How do you get to this place? How do you not know that you're going to be caught? And so what I think happens is, in a moment of ignorance or in absolute desperation, somebody tries something. And they realize that it works. No one notices. And so a month later, two months later, they try it again. And it works. And they're like, well, company's worth a trillion dollars. It's not like anybody's getting hurt if no one's getting hurt. And then and then company finds out and you're like, oh no, oh no, they found out. Well, what if I cut you in on the, on, the, on the deal? Because you're trying to protect yourself, right? You're trying to save your soul. And they're like, 
right, I get a little bit of taste. You handle it, man. This is all on you. You're telling me this is fine to do. And then that's how it starts, and eventually it becomes just a thing. It becomes a thing, and they never really think about the crime that they're committing, the violent act that they're engaged in. Theft is, you know, not acceptable. And they forget. Because they got to work more on ensuring the safety and security of the thing as opposed to the, the idea of right and wrong. That's how I think it builds up. That's how I think it happens. Otherwise, I got nothing. I have no other way to explain to you how in the world anybody thinks they're going to get away with that kind of stuff. It's just if you, if you, um, if 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 you get yourself, you know, in, in into a place where you're worried more about the, you know, people not finding out about the crime as opposed to whether or not you're committing the crime, and now you've got other people involved, and so you got to keep committing the pr- crime because if not, they'll out you for being engaged in the crime. And everyone's afraid to move because they think the other person's going to out them. That, by the way, is how despots remain in power. That's what I think is going on here. Also keeping an eye on the story of this uh, Chinese airliner. 143 people on board? No, I'm sorry, 132 people on board. That crashed uh, in China uh, earlier uh, today. Uh, They are still looking for survivors and certainly have not um, let loose of of whether there were survivors in uh, this, this crash. Um, you had 123 passengers and nine crew members. I have absolutely no idea who was on this flight because that's it's it's China. It's a question that has to be asked. Planes do crash from time to time. It is super rare. I mean, you got to admit what what we've done in when it comes to the safety of airplanes is quite incredible. And then you're gonna have to ask yourself if there was nobody on the plane right who you would be shocked to learn was on the plane then maybe we'll learn what happened maybe we'll learn that uh, of course the communists are incompetent and didn't actually have the safety procedures etc i wouldn't let this affect flying in the united states or in europe at all speaking of europe the war rages in ukraine What is the next step for Russia and where does China play in? Major Mike Lyons is up next. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. I I think you've got to keep bullying dictators like Vladimir Putin guessing. Uh, And and the fact is uh, that uh, weakness arouses evil. And, and, I, and I, I look, Vladimir Putin is to blame for the violence that's taking place in the Russian invasion today. No one else is to blame. But I have no doubt in my mind that the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the, the capitulation uh, to Putin, whether it be on, on Nord Stream 2 early in this administration, reentering the intermediate nuclear treaty that we had gotten out of because Russia was breaking it left and right. All these actions, I think, uh, I think unquestionably embolden Vladimir Putin. That's why I say uh, Putin only understands strength, and we need to meet this moment. So you, you think uh, by- that's a Vice President Mike Pence.
who was very much built for moments uh, like this, a, a Cold War showdown dealing with the Russian uh, aggressor. This is a guy who studied Reagan his whole life. This, this is uh, the moment. Meanwhile, uh, President Biden is uh, getting ready for a trip uh, to Europe. He'll be there for NATO meetings. He is going to visit Poland while he's there. Uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky wants him to visit Kiev if he's not afraid. That's a non-starter and a silly thing for the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky, to say. He's doing great in rallying his own people to the fight. He's not doing as great on the world stage as some people want to give him credit for. Tony Katz. Tony Katz, today it is so good to be with you. Major Mike Lyons joins us right now, retired United States Army West Point graduate, military analyst. Uh, and what we're getting over the weekend is that the city of Maripol, which is there to the south and east on the Sea of Azov, has basically been destroyed. It's, it's been, as in their words, wiped off the map. And once again, we see that the Russian military is incompetent, but even an incompetent military with a lot of artillery can do a tremendous amount of damage. What's the story there in Maripol, uh, Major? And then what is going on uh, in, in the other cities that Putin seems desperate to take to engage the further siege of, of Ukraine? Well, well, first, in, in Maripol, there's no question that he continues to destroy it and raise it. But there's a famous quote from uh, a book called This Kind of War by T.R. Fehrenbach that says, you could fly over a land, you could pulverize it, you can atomize it, you can do everything you can to try to chase people out of it. But unless you're willing to put people on the ground, uh, like the Roman legions did, you can't hold it. And, and that's what's happening. I didn't believe that um, Vladimir Putin wanted to destroy Ukraine in order to try to take it. But that's what he's going to try to do. And he's going to violate a very um, sincere principle of war and combat that says in history that shows that he's not going to be successful because he still doesn't own it. He still cannot get the maneuver troops in it uh, that like there, like Kiev, like Kharkiv, like even uh, other places in the, in, in, the, in the east as well as the north. So um, they're going into hasty defense. It's a, purely a, a stalemate that's taking place on the ground. It is nothing short of a miracle that that's the situation based on the fact that Russia is not even close to being a peer with Ukraine and the military. But but again, the bottom line is um, the will to win by the Ukraine military is just more than anything right now that the Russians can muster to try to defend and fight back. Because their military, and, and it's a twofold, A, they weren't actually told they were engaging a war. And it really does seem that this is a military that has Less than no training. You know, uh, the, the argument would be all the training goes out the window when the first bullet is fired at you. But that's when you know if you've got a military or not, that they can still keep advancing. It very much seems that the Russian military has zero training. So the question before us is, is that the case? And, and if it's not the case, what are we looking at versus what other forces are waiting in the wings? Well, I, I think what will be written about this conflict is the impact that NATO armies and military training has had on the Ukraine military in the last six or seven years since Crimea was taken by Russia. And we've poured more people and equipment and training into the Ukraine military and pivoted it away from the former Soviet-type military, which was top-heavy in officers, uh, poor non-commissioned officers, conscripts, volunteers, and the like. Uh, and they now have a different kind of military. They have a Western type of military of volunteers with better equipment and better confident in their leadership and capability. And, and you kind of stack all those together, and that's why you're seeing the Russians being defeated. You know, the Russians thought they could just bring mass and, and size and volume to the table 
and and continue to have success in in the in the, the strategic weapons. But here it is, four weeks into the fight, and they still the air the airspace is still contested. That's just unheard of. We wouldn't even fight this until the airspace was locked down and we had air superiority. So again, top to bottom. Yeah, I think um, the, the NATO forces and the U.S. military in particular, the Green Berets, are very proud right now knowing that they've trained an army in a very short period. They absorbed every single piece of that training, and they're putting it to good use every day right now in Ukraine. Talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army military analyst. So now you get we get back into the mind of Putin. We play this once again. We, we clearly accept that this is a Russian military that is not trained, very much does not seem capable, still has the artillery to destroy uh, parts of Ukraine, but as you're saying, can't actually hold the land. So this now brings in more desperate measures from Vladimir Putin, and that's been the conversation. Of course, it's been the conversation of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the, the, the Turks keep saying that there, there's something on the table. We, we could see uh, some movements on this. Zelensky went to Israel to beg for help and invoke the Holocaust, and I don't think that went over very well, just like invoking September 11th in Pearl Harbor did not necessarily go over well here, although the rest of his speech uh, seemed far more effective in the United States to Congress than it did to the Knesset. Um, but the, the, the question be, before us is, what is Vladimir Putin's next step? And if he doesn't feel he can control things on the ground... And he needs to send a message to get Ukraine to capitulate. Exactly how far right now do we believe he's willing to go? Well, I don't even know what that looks like anymore because I think Ukraine has some negotiating power. And um, if uh, Zelensky decides to leave the country or so, that that's fine. But the guerrilla war is on and it's going to continue for years. I mean, and I think that the, the general staff of the Ukraine military is telling that to its civilians. There, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pain. And, and there's going to still be a lot of destruction, but um, they're not going to win a guerrilla war uh, in, inside of Ukraine. And, and the sooner he recognizes that. So, you know, the off ramps, all those things are gone now. And, um, you know, the, the question is, what, what exactly is he going to want? And let's say he tries to keep Mariupol and some of those, the, the, the land into the south that gives him that actual land bridge from Russia to Crimea might be what it is. They might carve off a Russian Federation out of that. They might carve off some to the east, uh, to the to the east of even um, Kyiv. The question is, though, Kiev itself won't fall. Kiev won't fall. It'll it'll remain uh, well intact. Uh, it'll be too hard for the Russians to try to take that. It'll be too hard for the Russians to try to destroy it. I think the Ukraine uh, military will do a good job of, of taking the artillery out. Uh, that's been doing the, most of the damage. Um, and and Russia becomes a pariah. Their economy is destroyed. The the Russia, the country is going to continue to take a step back. And I think that, uh, you know, that's going to hurt him for many years to come. He's not going to, he's going to have a problem being the leader when this, this is all over. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's fight. You and me, we're going to it, Major. Talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army. We're now in the place where all of a sudden Vladimir Putin risks losing his position because that was never on the table. There was no one there to replace him. And uh, the question I get asked more than any other is why is it that nobody's taken him out as Senator Lindsey Graham wanted to do? And the answer is because fear is a real thing of Vladimir Putin and nobody wants the gig seemingly. Now all of a sudden, sir, we're talking about the fact that the, the Russian people are going to turn on him, he won't have a job, and doesn't the guy backed into the corner do other crazy things? Oh, I, yeah, no, yeah, I'm 
projecting a little bit further than that. I, the bottom line is Russia is going to become isolated. Their economy is going to stagnate, and there's going to be revolution. We're starting to see it take place already. Um, whether or not it happens sooner than later you know, remains to be seen, but uh, the, 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 that is likely what's going to happen. The question is how much support does it get from China, how much does the support to get from India and the like. There's still, I, I did a count, there's still about 3 billion people on the Russian side, so he could possibly get his way out of it. But I think any, any kind of contact with the West is, is completely over. Um, but um, I think it's going to be difficult for him to rule the, the country as, as time, more time goes on. He had that opportunity a few weeks ago if he decided to take an off-ramp then. But I think every day that goes by, I think it's going to be more difficult for him to rule the country. Let's head a little bit more east and let's head to China and the CCP discussing the fact that sanctions are, are ridiculous. They're speaking out. There's a question of who they back and, and how uh, they're, they're backing. What militarily would you be looking at regarding movements of uh, the, the the Chinese, uh, movements on their own border, movements on other borders, movements towards uh, Taiwan, or movements towards helping Russia? What is it that we should be looking for, and what would be a signal to the United States that it's time to speak up? Well, I think the same thing that uh, we would – he's concerned about on our side, strategic weapons. But it's a long way from China to Russia to get that equipment there. And with our satellite technology, we see what's happening. We know that some ships have gone through – the Russian ships have gone through the Suez Canal. Perhaps they're heading towards China. But, but uh, the logistics trail is very long. And while it, the border is short between Ukraine and, and Russia – They just have not made the plans in order to resupply the level of artillery and trucks and fuel and food that they're going to need, which is why they're in that that, that culmination point, and they've stopped moving, and they're all on the defense right now. So I I think we've got to be careful of bringing in SA-300s and these strategic weapons. I don't know how they cross the border. It's the same with the mix. I don't know how you get them across the border. I don't know how you hide them. I don't don't know how you refuel them. I don't know how you rearm them. And it, and it wouldn't really make a big difference. But those anti-aircraft defense platforms would make a difference. And, and the same thing goes. We still have to bring crews over. We have to arm them. Uh, they'd have to survive. There's radar that goes with them, fire direction centers. There's all this complexity to it that right now, that's not the war that's fighting. The war that's taking place inside Ukraine is a guerrilla war. And that's 8 to 10 squad-sized tactics with javelins and stingers picking off Russian tanks one at a time. The question is, going back to China, the question is, how are they going to get things through China, through Russia, through the border there? We'll know it, and we'll see it coming, and we just got to call them out on it if they do it. When you talk about this this guerrilla war, as, as I've been taking it in and listening to it, you know, you talk about the SA-300, you're talking about missile defense systems uh, uh, there, and I thought it was interesting. We we heard we were sending S-300s, and it, missile defense systems. Like, I don't even know how the, the United States or NATO has these, but because I thought there was were Russian missile defense systems, right? Yeah, they are, and they they they're in the former Soviet countries, Romania, for example. Poland, okay, these are these are the much them. older systems as opposed to the SU systems, which are the newer systems right. that, for example, Turkey purchased while they were helping us build the F thirty five Strike Fighter. Right. The, they have the S four hundreds, much better. Uh, that's right. The S three hundreds are still nineteen sixty seventy technology. NATO called them the SA fourteens. There's all different kind of different names for them. It, it, they they all have different levels of complexity, but but but, but the, while they're easily taken out, is because they require radar systems that have an, a very high heat signature and electronic signature that becomes the target. So you don't have to take out the missiles themselves, but you take out the eyes to the missiles, 
and that's that's the issue. The issue is the Russians would be able to. So take I just want to make sure the, I was on the same page with the. Yeah. I want to make sure I was on the same page with the systems uh, that they had. And you talk about this as as a guerrilla war. If if I understand my bit of history uh, properly, a guerrilla war becomes a war of attrition. Which side? is willing to take the, suffer the most amount of losses, and which side has the most amount of losses that they can take. So the Ukrainians certainly have an advantage because anybody who can make, some, make a Molotov cocktail is involved in a, in a guerrilla war. But the Russians seem to have a lot of people they can just march down a field, whether they like it or not, to try and take a village if, if they wanted to. Uh, who wins a guerrilla war? Yeah, no, I think the Ukraine does. It's similar to what we saw in Vietnam. I mean, it, you're right. It is about attrition, and, and that's what Russia thinks that they can now win. <clears throat> but I think at some point they still they run out of resources as well. It's it's all about the will to fight. They don't have the same level of will to fight. Now, the the guerrilla numbers were never on the side of Russia to begin with. Um, if, you, if you do just back of the envelope, there's 20 million men potentially inside of Ukraine that are between the ages of 18 to 61, and and you've got 50 to 100 thousand. That have come, that have come back. That's how that. That's how those weapon systems, by the way, are getting in. They're trickling in over the border on the backs of mercenaries and small and guys that are returning to Poland, then crossing the border, bringing a lot of that in. So it's coming in in, in small pieces as opposed to on on trucks along big roads. So so again, the, the the guerrilla numbers were never in the favor of the Russians. They needed to have won this in the first five days, and not winning it in the first five days shows you where they are right now, which is a, which is a stalemate. Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army West Point graduate military analyst, uh, MAJ Mike Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, MAJ Mike Lyons on Twitter. I appreciate you taking the time. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So a question that I'm actually kind of desperate to get the answer to and the question goes to the idea of the convenience fee tony katz tony katz today great to be with you it was an interesting article about how applebee's which i've not been to in a million years applebee's sees uh, an opportunity to grow through a to-go menu and they did so during covid and they're gonna start building out and planning to build out testing drive-thrus not that you place your order, you go to the drive-thru and it's ready. You use the app for your order. It's ready at a certain time. You come to the drive-thru window and there it is. And they actually saw this uh, account for enough sales to allow them to survive during COVID and maybe this is the future. But one of the things the article discussed, and it's, it's an industry I know, my, my family, my, my, my parents, uh, long in, in the credit card processing world. That more and more because of DoorDash, before of Grubhub, because of Grubhub, things like that. The fees on the processing, boom, get pushed to the consumer. Convenience fee, and then there's a delivery fee, this, that, and the other. And, and part of it is because these, these businesses are dealing with such labor issues, such rising costs, that they're saying, hey, if you want to use your card, that's fine. We can no longer absorb the cost. Those days are over, but you can use it. You'll absorb uh, the cost, but you'll have the convenience of using your card, getting your points, whatever the case may, may be. And, and, so, and this is happening. And even to the point where uh, it, it gets offered out, I know uh, that, that my family has done that. I, I've helped them w- with some things. The question before us is, is everyone cool with that? Is there a, a fee for using a credit card that you wouldn't pay? 
Would you pay for it at a pizzeria or at an Applebee's, but you wouldn't pay for it to buy a car? Or for your, your mechanic, I should say. Is there some place yes and some place no? Or, you know what, it's a convenience and I do it just like I get charged for whatever. Okay, it's a couple bucks. I've come to accept it. I'm the one making this decision, so I'm the one who pays the fee. I want to know where you're at. Facebook Tony Katz Radio. Tony at TonyKatz.com. Let me know. You cool with the fee, yes or no? Very curious. It's happening. I think people are fine with it in the main, but I figured I'd ask. Representative Ocasio-Cortez has lost her edge in a big way. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz.